Greetings to those who haven't been here before. Welcome to Ecclesia. Um, as we begin, we're just going to read through the passage today, which is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, through to chapter 6, verse 12. So if you could stand with me, that would be great for the reading of God's word. And if you're able to, in a loud voice, read along. By reading God's word, we're not only proclaiming what, what he's saying and who he is, but I, I find that it often helps for us to concentrate a lot better on, on his word. Amen. So from verse 8. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Sorry, this is from the New Living Translation. (laughs) But this is what I I am reading from, so... We, we don't usually read from it. We usually read from the ESV, but yeah, just follow along if you can, if you can change it over on your smartphone. So picking it up again from verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. People who work hard sleep well. Whether they eat little or much. Amen. Read with me, brother. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour. And everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to an end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged and angry. Even so, I've noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. There is another serious tragedy I've seen under the sun. And it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want. But then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy. A man might have a hundred children and live to be very old. But if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to have been born dead. His birth would have been meaningless and he would have ended in darkness. He wouldn't even have had a name and would have never seen the sun or known of its existence. Yet he would have had more peace than in growing up to be an unhappy man. 
He might live a thousand years twice over, but still not find contentment. And he must die like everyone else. Well, what's the use? All people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. So are the wise people really better off than fools? Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. The more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? Our lives are like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? Amen. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, as a collective, Lord. I am but your mouthpiece, Lord. I just ask, Lord, that you would uh, speak to, to your people, speak to even myself, Lord, as you have been doing, Lord, over these last few days, weeks, just meditating upon this portion of scripture. That, Lord, your word, Lord, will cut to our heart, Lord, and it would reveal, Lord, what is inside, reveal if there be any wicked way in us, Lord which we know there is, Lord. So, Lord, please purify us, Lord. Sanctify us by, Lord, your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we stand upon your word today and we thank you, Lord, that we are able, Lord, to read it, Lord, freely in this country, that we're able to uh, proclaim your name. I pray, Lord, that you're, you would just soften the hearts of those, Lord, who yeah struggling at this time that they will be comforted by your words lord and even those of us lord who may feel like we're doing great lord that we will be brought low by the glory of god we thank you jesus amen so just as a brief introduction for us to go over what we've already been studying we're in the book of ecclesiastes which is a record of the observations of a confused wise man who was set out to understand life on his own so this is reflected through an antagonistic rhetoric in his quest to explore the meaning of life under the sun. So in chapter 1, Pastor Rob was preaching, everything is meaningless. To increase knowledge is to increase sorrow. Then we looked at this, this search, this journey for purpose in life and meaning. And the first thing he comes across is pleasure. He, he said, I did great things and rewarded myself. What was the conclusion? Self-indulgence is vain. And then he thought, oh, maybe I'll pursue wisdom. It's better to be wise. But then he concludes, all will die. And as Pastor Ephraim was teaching, we had the example of that Indian man who was a triple doctor who still died. What good was it? Work. Maybe I'll find meaning in work. What do people gain from their labors and work? Labors and work, and they work hard to leave full riches to fools. Like, what's the point? Get all you can. You might as well. Everything exists to make me, to make me happy. Um, we have this belief that, yeah, we can be autonomous and just live without God. And then Mark came to preach on chapter three: a time for everything. There's a time for everything under the sun, but the important thing is that we trust God in all seasons. Because he is in control. And then he, he looks upon justice and he's asking, where can we find justice? But then he concludes, in due season, God will judge everyone. 
both good and bad, for all their deeds. And then he ponders on the human condition. And then he says to enjoy, that the conclusion of it is to enjoy the fruit of our work. And it's a gift from God. And that's our advantage over the animals. Chapter 4. We looked at um, observed oppression. He observed oppression. And he concluded the dead are better off than the living. What's the point? All this wickedness in the earth. What is the point? And just, it would be, be better to be, just be dead than alive. And then the vanity of pleasing people. So he concludes there. To be content with little, better than being dissatisfied and disgruntled with much. And working excessively, working yourself to the bone for what? The vanity of the lonely miser. Again, he looks at a man who is, again, pursuing excessive wealth. And he doesn't even have anyone to share it with. And he concludes, well, maybe I can find value in companionship. For two are better than one, right? And then last week, as Pastor E went over chapter 5, he looked at the vanity of religiosity. And it, it closes quite nicely. Talk is cheap, like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. That's Ecclesiastes 5, 7. So, we live in a society today where contentment is... Very, very hard to find. I can't remember the statistics, but I think it was about we live in the top 3% of the wealthiest countries in the world. And, and I, I can say for myself, upon my observation, the more we have more now than our parents and our grandparents had, and we're even more con- discontent than they were. What I thought was quite nice about this verse that we land on, talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities, fear God instead. I was thinking yesterday about Muhammad Ali and just thinking about how much he spoke and it just reminded me so much of this Kohelef in Ecclesiastes, his journey through life. And Muhammad Ali said some good things, but he also said some very wrong things. Um, here are a few quotes I would like to share with you just as we... Uh, remember his life. He he, he did serve uh, human rights in a great in a great way. Not just here, but not just overseas, but here. Um, so first thing, this is something that he says: silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. Hey, you know he, Muhammad Ali loved to talk. He loved to talk up uh, his opponents. Used to wear them down with his um, yeah, just with his mind games. But what do we know from scripture? In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And what's interesting is why is Muhammad Ali even spoke, speak, speaks about Ecclesiastes. He says, life is so, so short. Bible, uh, the Bible says it's like a vapor. And we know that that comes straight from Ecclesiastes. Spare with me. Okay. And then he says, God tries you in certain ways. Some people are rich and they believe in God. They lose the money. Things get hard. They get weak and quit and go into church. Quit serving God like they did. Doesn't this sound so familiar to our text that we just read? And probably one of the reasons why he may have pursued Islam. He saw the prosperity of, uh, 
of some Christians, their, their, their view on prosperity that they could, yeah, get, think that they could get rich just by believing in God. They lose the money, things get hard, and they just give up on God. The only thing that matters, he says, is submitting to the will of God. Well, Ali was right there. And that's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, that the only thing that matters is submitting to God's will. But we know that he did err and he said, I believe in the religion, religion of Islam. I believe in Allah and peace. And then, hey, to conclude, he said, I said I was the greatest. I never said I was the smartest. So even Ali realizes his fragility as a human being. What is so amazing is Ali as a human being is he transcended sport. He, he moved into the political sphere at a time where black people were really struggling with their rights in North America. And that brings us nicely on to the first verse. Which reads, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful. And if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. Okay, let's just stop there. So here we have... The, the powerful oppressing the poor. Them using their unfair advantage to attain wealth. In chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, he says that it's better not to be born than to see the evil. I mentioned it earlier. He looks upon the injustice and the imp- oppression of the poor who cannot defend themselves. How often do we see this in our lives Many people that put their, their hope in, in political systems say, oh, the government, forget the government, forget the system, Babylon, whatever. So here he's trying to bring us to a place of understanding that we shouldn't be surprised that man is sinful and even these people that are in power will disappoint us. He goes on to say, For every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Again, the other day, we heard about the FIFA scandal and how even more stories are coming out about money, even more money that's been stolen. And my mother-in-law was saying to me, "How, how can these people do this? And I'm like, I'm not surprised. Like, they're sinners. And if they're just living for this life, what what's stopping them? Really, what is stopping them from wanting more? This, obsess, this obsessiveness of more and more. So don't be surprised. Man is evil. Man is sinful, sorry. To have kings, um, Israel desired to have kings. So thinking about the context of uh, this book and Israel, um, the first scripture we're going to turn to is First Samuel chapter 8, verse 11 to 18. So... There was a big problem because God set up Israel as a theocracy, which means he was to be the head. He was to be their king. He was the one to dictate what happened, when it happened, justice. And the people got tired. They saw the other countries having their own king, their own figurehead. We want a king. We want a king. And we read it here in First Samuel chapter 8, 11 to 18. So Samuel's had enough. They've been begging Samuel, please ask God, give us a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. 
The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his field and harvest his crops. And some will make weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king that you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. So, as we read earlier, these officials are using an unfair, their unfair advantage of power over the poor to oppress them. Now, there's, there's kind of two ways we can read this. We can read it as officials fleecing each other to get to a higher echelon of democracy, or we can see it as Government protecting each other with the intention of getting gain from others. Basically just government bureaucracy gone haywire. But what do we know? Uh, What do we know from Isaiah chapter chapter 9 verse 6 to 7? If you can just put it on the screen. What do we know from that? What do we learn about the kingdom that we can put our hope in? It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, a government will rest upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. There is a hope that even if we do fail in making and be frustrated with putting our hopes in political uh, figureheads. We do have one in heaven who will ultimately come to reign and we can place our hope in him. Amen. So again, verse 9, even the king milks the land for his own good, for his own profit. And again, uh, Luke 4, verse 18, Christ's commission was to come to proclaim good news to the poor, bring freedom to prisoners, and recover the sight of the blind and set oppressed free. So that's what we should remember. Don't be frustrated with political failures, and don't be surprised either, because man is sinful. Verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The vanity of money. A very definitive statement. Wealth never truly satisfies. No one makes enough. It's insatiable. As I mentioned earlier, the more you have, the more you want. And it never fulfills that desire. Next, verse 11. Surplus riches are unprofitable. Why are they unprofitable? The more you have, 
the more people come to help you to spend it. So what good is wealth, except perhaps to watch, watch it slip through your fingers? So this is referring to exorbitant wealth. It's not referring to just the basic necessities of life where we have food and drink, and I'll go on to mention that later in the sermon, that the more, the more money you have, the more clingers on you have. They will want to somehow make use of your money and say, oh yeah, I'll do this little investment for you. I'll make this money for you. In any way they can to try and get your riches. More money, more problems, bigger house. The more money you have, the bigger house you want. The more bills, the more you get taxed. The more guests to entertain in your large house. It just goes on and on and on. The more money you have to give to the poor. And then he says, so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch, to watch it slip through your fingers? Here, um, Proverbs 23 verse 5 says, just look at the riches and they are gone out. They're, they sprout out like wings. They fly like an eagle. So the only, the only enjoyment that one has in having abundance of wealth is watching it slip through your fingers. Other than food and clothes, what good is it to us other than to be just looking at it? What good is it? Christ said it is much better to give than what? Receive. Amen. And that life doesn't consist of the abundance of things. Luke chapter 12, 15. What else does surplus wealth do? It produces anxiety. Produces anxiety. Verse 12. People who work hard sleep well whether they eat little or much. So here it's referring to a poor man laboring, working hard, you can imagine in an in a, in a agrarian society, working hard in the fields, and just, he can sleep well, he works hard. And because, we, because with the abundance of his work, and he's weary with his labor, the more, his, more of his labor that he has, produces good digestion, I guess. It raises metabolism. Like, whether he eats a a lot or a little, it makes no difference to him. He can sleep well. Okay, this is just on a physical level, but more on a spiritual level, we know really what it's trying to teach us is that the anxiety. He doesn't have to worry. He doesn't roll around in bed thinking, hmm, what can I do with my money? What more can I do with my money? What more can I spend my money on? but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep you can imagine rich a lot of rich people they get rich because they're good at delegating they they know how to delegate work they get others to do work for them and this may be the picture that he's painting that the rich they're so wealthy they've got others to work for them they can just eat they can just chill lay lay back they sleep on a full stomach with rich foods, enjoy the rich foods in life. Again, this just analyzing this on a physical level. Lazy. Yeah, they're just lazy. And then because of that, the rich foods that they eat, the sleeping just compounds the problem because indigestion and it overcharges the heart. It's not good. Um, but yeah, on, on a serious note, the rich, uh, they, they, they trouble in their heart when they sleep because... 
what he's suggesting here from what he mentions about oppression in the rich. A lot of them make rich, get rich and get wealthy through unjust means. They're anxious about riches that will just be here today and gone tomorrow. Again, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. We live in an age where, like I mentioned earlier, it's always about, I've got this car. I'm going to save up, then I'm going to get the next car. And then when I save up, I'm going to get the next car. Until, like, it's just a never-ending cycle. On and on and on it goes. Upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. It's never downsizing. As As a few people here know, I'm a, I'm a trainer aficionado. Like, I love trainers. I love shoes. Anything to do with that. And reading this just really convicted me. I admit I, I am coming. The Lord is continuing to sanctify me in that area. But I must say, like, yeah, what, what good is it to have all these, these things? What's the point? Are we thinking about downsizing our life or, again, are we just thinking about upgrading it, getting more and more things? And as soon as I was reading this, my mind went straight to Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. If you can just bring it up on the screen, please. And it's the parable of the rich fool. From verse 13. Just wait for it. If we can take it from verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide my, our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, again, like I I mentioned, what shall I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. So, if we just consider that passage, isn't it so true how a surplus of riches produce anxiety? But what are we commanded to do by the Lord in Philippians 4 verse 6? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer, with, through, prayer, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your heart and mind in Christ. Amen. It produces anxiety. We move on to verse 13. The evil of greed. He says, there is another serious problem. In the Hebrew is translated, a grievous evil. I've seen under the sun. Again, he's using this language, under the sun. 
the perspective on life that is limited by man. A serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. So hoarding riches produces hurt to self and others. How does it do this? It produces pride. People become lovers of money rather than lovers of God. They hurt themselves and they hurt others. So how do they hurt themselves? The more they have, the more they're in danger of mischief. And having mischief come upon them, they would not be envied or robbed if they were not rich. Let me take it a few levels. So go with my sneaker uh, appreciation. Someone has a pair of white sneakers. Some of you young people will appreciate this. If someone steps on those pair of white sneakers, you're going to be really annoyed, right? Let's take it up a next level. You have, you've bought yourself a really nice luxury car. What happens? What happens when you buy that nice luxury car? Sometimes it attracts the wrong attention. Somebody who just out of spite will just come along, key up the car. And if we go even further, hey, a lot of sportsmen have had their family members held hostage because of their riches, because their wealth is known. That's how serious abundance of riches, uh, that's the mischief that can come upon you. So it's like the fattened animal that is led to the slaughter first. They hurt others with, with their greed. So they oppress the weak, as we read earlier, and they deal harshly with them. If you can just bring up First Timothy chapter 6, 6 to 11. I think this is probably one of the most profound scriptures when it comes to contentment and riches in the New Testament. It says... Take from verse 6. Yeah, thank you. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and perceived themselves and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from these evil things, pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Amen. So we're... We're encouraged here that godliness with contentment is great gain. There's, there's no benefit to, to heaping up riches. We can't take it with us when we leave. And it says if we have enough of food and clothing, this is enough. Let us be content. So those who hoard riches usually um, lay it up with a great deal of pain. There's a lot of organization that goes into accruing wealth. And then the same pain they're having in trying to achieve that wealth, they have in 
trying to stave off those who want to come and grab it. And try and prevent themselves from escaping from their wealth. So what do they do? Sometimes this may even end up in them making shortcuts. Gambling. Try to squat. They end up taking risks. And then in doing so, they squander all their wealth. It's like double or nothing. Just bear with me. So verse 14, sorry. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. Um, Ecclesiastes 11, 1 to 6 goes on to say that he, he, makes, he observes a trade ex- expedition, something similar to stocks. Uh, wealth is lost in an evil situation. That's the literal Hebrew translation and what suggests, again, for oppression, wrongdoing, um, provoking neighbors to then come and seek vengeance and, yeah, take his wealth. But at the end of the verse, he says, we leave nothing to our children. How often is it we've seen so many rich people that their, their children get the inheritance and they're like, yeah. And then in the end, they end up finding out they've been cheated. There's this great show of estate, but in the end, they're left with a great debt. And the inheritance is worth nothing. Money can't be taken with us, so give generously to God. God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 15. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take riches with us. Pretty straightforward, right? And quite similar to what Job says. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It came to the earth with nothing. Naked I came, naked I return. So there's this idea amongst some of Christendom that, hey, make, get all you can now. Make money now. It's all about the here and now. It's not about eternity. It's about now. It's about getting rich now. But again, we, we read earlier, godliness of contentment is great gain. Be content, food and clothing, the basic necessities of life. What's interesting about this idea of we, we came in naked and empty-handed and then we can't take our riches with us is we come. What do we do when we come into earth? When you see a baby come out, what do you see? You see the baby grasping, grasping for something, grasping for its mother. And it's, isn't that just so synonymous of sin that we just want to grab everything? We just want to take what we can. Yet when we die, what do you see when a person dies? The hand is just open. It's left. You can't, you're gone. That's it. You can't bring anything with you into eternity. It's left. If you can just put a Matthew 6 verse 19 for me. Another encouraging scripture from the New Testament. Do not store up tre- treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them. And where thieves break in and steal. Again, this, this idea of thieves coming to pursue and yeah, reap 
take money from those who are wealthy. So that's the grievous evil that money will just be left behind. Greed produces sin, misery, and death. Verse 16. And this too is a very serious problem. People will leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. So what are you working for? You're amassing wealth. It's a hopeless endeavor. Don't waste your life. And again, he says about wind. He mentions this a lot through Ecclesiastes. Again, it's used interchangeably in certain translations with a vapor. It's, it's more sound than substance. It's good for nothing. Like, and what does wind do? It blows violently. And it takes with it what it wants. It has no regard, no premeditation or course. It's just gone. Like wind, like working for the wind. Verse 17. Through their lives they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. So not only do those who have riches, uh, not only are they greedy and not only does it produce sin, but it produces misery. causes a great deal of sorry. Um, We mentioned it earlier how the rich man wrestles in his sleep, wondering how can I use my money for the next thing. But what does he do? He ends up, it concludes here, frustrated, discouraged and angry. As opposed to what we should be in the Lord, which is elated, encouraged and joyful. What's interesting is that if we just think about this, this person who's characterized in this passage, he's almost vexed that his sickness denies him the busyness of work. And he's also vexed that his money gives him no relief, no matter how much he accrues, and he's terrified with death. He has a sorrow, as the New Testament describes, unto death. He's sorrowful at God's providence in his sickness. He's like, why should I be, why? I'm sick and ah, oh, I'm sick of this and it's, why am I being like this? He's not, he doesn't have a sorrow that leads to repentance, which is a joyful patience through his sickness and the misery that he's brought upon himself by his riches. Verse 18, even so, I've noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. Are you happy with where you're at in life? Are you content? Scriptures say it's good to enjoy food. It's good to enjoy drink. These are the blessings from God 
enjoying health and wealth in the Lord. And before you say heretic, it's not health, and pros- health, wealth and prosperity. It's literally enjoying God's health that he provides to us. The wealth that he provides to us. And what's important is, is it's in the Lord. It's not the health and wealth, yeah, that I've got by myself. It's the health and wealth in the Lord. So yes, it is okay to enjoy wealth. Um, he says, labor and to- we labor and toil. And then that, this idea of under the sun just, just gives like vivid imagery of, of the fall, right? How the curse came upon us, how we would work by the sweat of our brow under the, the beat of the sun, the sun beating down on our head. Hard labor. This is the relief in life that we were provided health and wealth by, by God. And this is the contentment that we should enjoy. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10 to 13, one of the most misinterpreted scriptures, I think, of the New Testament. We can just read through it. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Excuse me, reading from the ESV. I, re- I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had an opportunity. Not that I'm speaking in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ. All things through him who strengthens me. Yeah, through Christ who strengthens me. So this passage is not speaking about, oh, anything's possible. Yes, there are other passages that speak about it, but this passage is directly speaking about contentment and how that we are supposed to be content in whatever situation we're in. We're supposed to be able to um, rejoice in much and rejoice in little because what is important? God is important. Verse 19. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and a good health to enjoy it. So, this is, an, this is very important as we lead on to the next part. That it's God who provides wealth for us. It's God who provides health for us to enjoy to, joy, to enjoy our work and to accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. And the reason it is a gift is because God keeps such p- people so busy enjoying life, they take no time to brood over the past. So like this example of this other gentleman, this rich, he's miserable, just can't enjoy life because he's got so much money, can't enjoy it. He, he can't even enjoy his money because he's so concerned with making more. Again, it's, it's like when good gifts become ultimate. It's idolatry. It's sin. And what does it say? It's a gift. It's not a right or a guarantee. Many, many, many of us think we have the right to go out on a shopping spree. Think we have a right to go and get the next new phone. Don't have any right. It's a gift from God. And then he, in the New Testament... He forgets God is like that fool that we read of 
He wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. But what are we to do? We're to be content with food and drink. As Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That is the basic necessities, food, shelter, clothing. So again, contentment with the basic necessities, a timely distraction from the harshness of life. So this is the gift of God that in this harsh life, we can experience a brief relief. That we can be fed and clothed by God. So, verse, verse 20, God keeps such people so busy enjoying time, life that they have no time to brood over the past. So, instead of worrying through life, this, this food and this shelter and this clothing is an anesthetic to the pain and the misery of life. So, be patient, enjoy life, knowing that your own limitation, knowing your own limitations Don't vex yourself with unrealistic expectations. Each day of existence, labor, and basic provisions, they are a gift from God. And if we can grasp that reality, we can enjoy an abundant life. The morbid reality, as Kohelef looks at this example of the person who is able to enjoy wealth and health that is given from God, he looks on this other example where this person's future is out of their control. Well, well, it's out of control regardless of who you are, but our, lack of, or our, our own lack of power to enjoy the blessings of life. So chapter 6, there is a, another serious tra- tragedy I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. He, he sees something that just disturbs him. God gives some people great wealth and honor to, and everything they could ever want, but then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. Wealth without health is meaningless. You can have all the wealth in the world. You can have all the riches. It means nothing. God can take your life like that. So the gift of, God, of common providence, which are bestowed on many who, uh, is bestowed on many who are denied the gifts of special grace, and special grace being saving grace, without which the gifts of providence often do more hurt than good, and that being riches and wealth. So what does this lead to? It leads to unfulfilled desires. Verse 2. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they want, but he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy. So this gentleman that was personified earlier, you can imagine he's only thinking about the rich man. He dies and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying his wife. You can imagine this idea of, again, I spoke about the people that will just leech onto riches. They end up enjoying the wealth. They somehow worm their way into the, the will and the testament. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy. And what he goes on to say now He goes on to say that a man might have a hundred children. So he's gone, just puts riches to a side for a minute. A man might have a hundred children and live to be very old. So in in that culture, having lots of children is a a mark of a blessing from God. 
Living very old is a mark of a blessing from God. But he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial. So Psalms 127, children are heritage from the Lord. It says that grey hair is a crown of glory. You can't even enjoy others' possessions because it's impossible for him to, in, to, to be buried correctly due to the strangers that have dishonoured and just taken his estate. And if he was just content with his life, enjoying life with his children, maybe he would have had a decent burial. So we know even of Jesus who, who needed uh, someone else's grave. The importance of being, being buried. Buried in a rich man's cave. And even the fact that, it, that his grave was taken good care of and it was periodically visited showed that honour was bestowed upon him as an individual. But this man, what does it say? He didn't even get a decent burial. It would have been better for him to have been born dead. And in, in, the, in the Hebrew, in the literal translation, it's stillborn, miscarried. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, we empathize with anyone that's experienced that. It's a horrible thing, but it's saying it's better for, him to, to, for that to have happened to him than him to have just lived a long life, 100 children, and not even get satisfaction in life. He wouldn't have even had a name. In, that t- in, the, in those days we know about um, Esau. Um, when, he, when he came out, he was, he was named after he came out. Often they were named after they came out, not before. He would never have seen the sun or known of his, its existence. Yet he would have known more peace than growing up to be an unhappy man. He might live a thousand years twice over, but still not find contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, what's the use? What is the use? So, yeah, death is the great leveler. So he uses this exaggeration again. If a man might live a thousand years twice over, we know that that's not really, impos- that, that's not really possible, but he's using it um, to exaggerate the point that length of days are vain without God. It's pointless. We know that it's appointed once for man to die, then the judgment. Food is enough. So verse 7, all people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. So are wise people really better off than fools? Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? So what we need, we consume. A man can eat all he wants in one day. Tomorrow he's going to be hungry. Surplus food is, no, is, is of no benefit. Food only serves to maintain us. Corinthians says food for the belly and belly for food. Surplus wealth is only for the eyes. And then he, he just, it's almost like he's being skeptical and directing it at the wisdom of Proverbs. 
that says the righteous will never go hungry. Never. Then we move on to the vanity of coveting. How it is vain to covet. Verse 9. Enjoy, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. So there's this, there's this seesaw tipping balance of thankfulness and covetousness. Contentment in little is happier than he who covets and possesses abundance. Ecclesiastes 4.6 God is coming soon, as we read in Thessalonians. Ephesians 5, don't be covetous. It goes on to say in 20, chapter 5, 20 to 21 of Ephesians, but walk as children of light. The days are evil. And then this idea of someone chasing the wind. I don't really need to go explain that. It just it, it speaks for itself. It's just ludicrous, chasing the wind. So now we've reached the halfway stage of Ecclesiastes. And Koheleth has gone through this journey of trying to find meaning in life. Work, pleasure, money, relationships, religion, success. And now he goes on to provide some advice. So what does Koheleth think is important? God alone controls everything. So avoid high expectations. Everything has already been decided, verse 10. It was known long ago what each person would be. Would be. So there's no use in arguing with, with God about your destiny. So this idea here, everything has been decided. The Greek is named. When Adam named the animals, it, it demonstrated a sign of dominion. It also demonstrated, a na- it was more than just label assigning. It was was a signing function. So Ephesians 1.4, again, God chose before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah 1.5, before you were born, I formed you in your mother's womb. Um, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. We don't do as we please. God does as he pleases. And this book is quite good to sit alongside Job when Job is struggling with why these things are happening to him. One of his, one of his friends, Elihu, says, God is greater than man, and he just shuts Job's mouth. God is greater than man. So, verse 11, let our words be few. The more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? It's like the law of diminishing returns. Like the more you speak, it's, it's just you're devaluing what you say the more you speak. God informs our existence is another truth that we, we take from this, this passage. Verse 12. In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? Our lives are like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? Our life is there, but barely. 
Man cannot control or know the future in our limited scope. And so, as we just conclude the message, don't be surprised and frustrated with political failures. Man is sinful. We learn that we cannot put our hope in any political figureheads. They will disappoint us and oftentimes they will oppress us, the poor ones. The vanity of money. Surplus riches are unprofitable because life does not consist of the abundance of things. The vanity of money. Surplus riches produce anxiety. Do not be anxious. The evil of greed. Greed hurts ourselves and it hurts others. Many who have desired to be, be rich, it says in Timothy, pierce themselves with many sorrows. Hoarded riches perish and are squandered. We are not to store up our treasures on earth, but in heaven, where moth and rust don't corrupt, neither do thieves break in and steal. Greed produces sin, misery, and ultimately death. No, Siri. And we read in Corinthians that those who agree, who, yeah, pursue greed will not inherit the kingdom of God. Enjoy health and wealth in the Lord. This is the brief relief that we have. Enjoy your, your health and your wealth in the Lord. Contentment with the basic necessities, a timely distraction from the harshness of life. And then he, refl- go, he transitions back to the morbid reality. The future is out of our control. And we have a lack of power to enjoy blessings in life. Unfulfilled desires. We may have all the money in the world, but if we don't have the health to sustain that, it's unfulfilled. Coveting is vain. God alone controls everything, so avoid high expectations. Again, God, our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. And again, God informs our existence. Just before I close, Kohela swings from enjoying life to in chapter 7, perhaps preferring death. Life is full of lows and it's full of highs. Sin is deceitful and blinding to the eternal consequences. Apart from God, there is no meaning to life. In the rest of the book, he goes on to explain wisdom and providence. And he, he, he resounds the dangers of the restrictive perspective of life under the sun. So, let's just reflect on this. As sinners, our tendency is to seek for the meaning of life. By ourselves. Self-autonomy. I can do it by myself. I can find out uh, what life's all about. And that's exactly what got 
that's in trouble in the first place, Adam and Eve, hoping to be like gods, entertaining themselves with what seemed good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable to make one wise. And the last two verses of the whole book, fear God, obey commands, in the light of the impending judgment. So rely on God or risk wasting your life. There is a warning against speculative thinking and there's an assurance of death. But the encouragement towards the final conclusion that we are not to be protagonists of our own destiny, but we are to humbly submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God through Christ. Before I close, I'm just going to read Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. I just invite the team to come up afterwards. So as I read these verses, just... Just think about where you're at in terms of your attitude towards riches. Are you content with where you're at in life right now? Are you content with the health and the wealth that God richly provides to you? These are things to consider. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken." Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you, Lord, that not only does it wound us, Lord, in the sense that we're hurt, Lord, when we see what we truly are, but it heals us, Lord. It provides a great balm for our souls, Lord, um, in a way that nothing else can, Lord. Nothing else can truly satisfy us besides you, Lord Jesus. No wisdom, no honour, no riches. No glory belongs to us, Lord. All the glory belongs to you. So, Lord, we do ask, Lord, that as we go from here, Lord, that we be sober-minded, Lord, that we think upon your word, that we think upon what you have spoken to us of today, Lord. The search for contentment, Lord. The search to find an understanding that, Lord, what you give us uh, is enough. The basic necessities in life and the purpose of that, Lord, is that it's a vehicle, Lord, for us to preach the gospel. Lord, I pray for those in here who do not know you. I pray, Lord, that um, your word would have um, touched them, Lord, and spoken to them, Lord, at their point of need. And, Lord, we trust you, Lord, for their salvation. We can't convince anyone, Lord, through our, our words, Lord. Only your word has the power to save
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.